The following audio is from Restoration Southside Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, where our mission is to restore people and places through outreach, authenticity, and sacrifice. For more information, visit RestorationSouthside.org. People change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you are in kindergarten through fifth grade and you would like to go to children's church, please join our volunteers by the kids zone sign. If it is your child's first time in children's church, please go with them so that we can get them checked in. Well, thank you, Steve. As you can see, we are joining and jumping into a new sermon series in the book of Exodus. Uh, It's the second book of the Bible, just kind of a reference of where we are in the story of Scripture. And it uh, tells about the people of God leaving Egypt after years of slavery. We'll give you a rundown and a backdrop to it. But the reason we are doing... um, uh, an Old Testament book is we usually do a New Testament, Old Testament, just to keep the diet that we're drawing from well balanced. But but also Exodus is our biography. It's the, it's the story of, of following Jesus, that we're on a journey, that we're headed somewhere. Uh, but also it's a remedy, that it shows us provisions along the way on that journey, how God involves himself with his people, but also gives them something to grab a hold of as they're journeying toward the promised land for the Israelites. But for us, Jesus has promised the abundant life. And so the things that they have, we take up and are relevant for us as we journey toward that uh, abundant life that Jesus promises. And we'll jump in this morning as we look at Exodus 13, but we'll look at three things. First, the people. uh, Second, the path. And then third, the pillar. The people, the path, and the pillar. And so with that in mind, would you join me as we pray and study God's word together. Let's pray. The narrow road, Lord, is what we just sang about. That you called your people to leave uh, the wide, well-known one for one that's not well-known, the one that's narrow, the one that's hard and unknown. And so this very day, Lord, as we uh, long to know what that looks like in our lives, would you meet us exactly where we are, Holy Spirit? You took your people from something that was well-known, not good, but well-known in Egypt, and took them on an unknown, narrow road to the promised land. And so may we walk that road following you alone, not ourselves, not others, not even what others think of us, but Lord, you alone. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, 
<clears throat> so we're jumping into a new uh, sermon series, a new book of the Bible, a new time of the Bible. And so let's take a second and just kind of set the stage, the backdrop, the context. At the very end of Genesis, there's a guy named Joseph. And Joseph kind of enters the picture in Genesis 37 and on. And Joseph was someone who, uh, he had a lot of brothers, and his brothers didn't like him. He had the favor of their father, and their jealous hearts grew. And so they sold him into slavery and went back home and told their dad that they had, he had been killed. He's dead. What had happened was he went into slavery, and then he made his way over uh, to Egypt. And in Egypt, he finally rose in the ranks and became second in command in this foreign nation of Egypt. And during that time, there's a famine coming. And so he helped Egypt be kind of this, um, this arsenal where all surrounding nations would come to and draw from the grain and the things that, that were needed during the famine. And so he was this great leader. And finally, all of God's people in Israel came to Egypt because of the famine. And they were reconnected. And then that's where in Genesis 50, we hear the common, the, the, the helpful words and hopeful words of Joseph saying to his brothers who had sold him into slavery, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Well, Joseph then dies and God's people are still in Egypt. For 400 years, they're slaves. And God brings up in that 400 years, a leader named Moses, who is an Israelite. And he's raised in the Egyptian home of Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt. And he then, at one point, uh, sees how an Egyptian is treating an Israelite, and he kills the Egyptian. And he runs away and flees and runs in the wilderness. And during his time in the wilderness, God says, go back to Egypt. And go back, and I'm going to use you, and I will draw my people out of Egypt and take them to the promised land. And then the ten plagues happen, and each of those plagues is basically um, kind of a dismantling and an embarrassment to specific gods that the Egyptians worshipped. That they worshipped gods, and each plague kind of directly showed that God of Israel, the God of Israel, is the true God, not the things that the Egyptians worshipped. And then there's this exodus that God's people leave because of the Passover, this final plague of the angel of death. And the Israelite people would kill an innocent lamb, put the blood on the doorposts, and the angel would pass over because the, the Israelite homes were saying, we trust in the blood of the innocent lamb instead of our own righteousness. And that's finally the moment where Pharaoh says, Israel, go. You can leave. Get out of here. So we are picking up in Exodus 13 in that moment that they are leaving. They are walking out the exit door of Egypt. That's where we are. And so here we find ourselves that God's people, first point, the people, they've been enslaved for 400 years. And God is taking them and leading them to a place like the promised land where there is life and provision and milk and honey and all that stuff. And Moses is leading the people, but also he's writing the first five books of the Bible. And in the first five books, he's telling them what God has done. God is leading them and powerfully moving and orchestrating the story, but also there's kind of commentary about what the people are like. Moses makes it clear the dispositions of the people and what they're like. And it's clear that he's saying that after 400 years of intentionally and deliberately being broken down and told they are lesser than as slaves in Egypt, that it's taken a toll and broken every part of them. That they are weak, not just from building bricks and, and helping build pyramids, 
but they're weak in, in every sense of the word. Every part of them has been broken down and belittled. And that's what we see. As the Israelites are leaving Egypt, it says in verse 17, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. They're so weak and they're so, the tank is so empty that God knew them enough to say, they're so weak if they see any resistance, any threat, they will run back to Egypt. That he knows the people enough to know that they love the sweet nothings, that enslavement of 400 years whispers in their ears more than the hope and the promise the promised land offers. He knows the people and he knows their weakness. When I read the book of Exodus, I can't not think of Seinfeld. I'm just, there's no segue from Exodus to Seinfeld. But in Seinfeld, there's an episode where George, a character, there's slews of characters in, in Seinfeld. But George is kind of a pros- prospectless character who always kind of usurps kind of meaning from other people and, and kind of always uses folks uh, in a very uncunning way. And there's one um, episode where George will not share his credit card PIN number, his PIN code, his password. And his password is this, Bosco. It's the once famous chocolate syrup, Bosco. And so there's a conversation that George has with his friends in Jerry's apartment with Jerry and Jerry's neighbor, Kramer. And George sa- uh, Jerry says, come on, George, tell me your code. And George says, I am not giving you my code. And Kramer says, I bet I can guess it. Yeah, and George says, yeah, right. And Kramer says, okay, all right, let's, let's see here. He says, you can, we can throw out birthdays immediately. That's obvious. And no numbers for you, George. You're, you're a word man. All right, let's go deeper. What kind of man are you, George? You're weak, spineless. You're a man of temptation, but what tempts you? You're a portly fellow, long in the waistband. So what is your pleasure? Is it the salty snacks that you crave? No, 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 no. Yours is a sweet tooth. And George finally realizes he's being cornered, and he says, I'm, I'm out of here. And as he's running out of the apartment, Kramer says, oh, you may stray, but you'll always return to your dark master, the cocoa bean. (laughs) And only the purest syrup nectar can satisfy you. If you could, you'd guzzle it by the gallon. Ovaltine, Hershey's, Nesquik, what is it? Kramer's trying to guess George's credit card pass code and doesn't just get to the code part. He's reading all of George's mail. He's reading into George's inner life. He knows how George works, what makes him tick. And he knows the thing that George runs to so often. And God knows the people of Israel. He knows and reads their mail and he sees what makes them tick. And he knows everything about them, including their inner life. And he knows what they will run back to. 
And God knows if they run up to resistance like the Philistines, they're just going to run back to Egypt. And so often in our lives, when we in our lives feel tension, feel like there's too much, the, the water's rising, we're up against too much, so often we relieve that tension by saying, I'm just going to run to something I know. And it may not be something that gives me freedom or fullness, but it gives me something. It gives me some kind of meaning. It lets me plug into its story that it offers me. And God knows their feebleness, the weakness, the patterns of belief that enslavement has ingrained in the people of Israel, and he knows they'll go back because they're so fearful. And one pastor in another city uh, who works on a college campus was in a conversation with a student, and in that conversation, the student said, I've never known a decision not made out of fear. And that's what's true of the Israelites. They'll go back to Egypt and to enslavement because they're fearful. And it's true of us that that fear will drive us to go to things and make decisions for things in ways in which that we will say and do uh, and personify the quote of, I just want to go back to Egypt. It may not be good, but it's something. I want to go back to a place that gives me some kind of meaning instead of the path that God is leading me on forward. And we need to acknowledge and articulate these rhythms and routines and the things that are ingrained in us because it doesn't put stress fractures in our faith, but what it does is help us see exactly how we're wired. And when we see the pet sins, when we see our natural tendencies, when life gets too much, it actually allows us to have a direct inroad to the heart of God because it cultivates in us a spirit of repentance. The more you know about your failure, it doesn't disqualify you. It actually makes you well aware enough to know God can love me exactly where I am right now. And so for you, where in your life do you say, I want to go back to Egypt? I'm so fearful. There's so many things in my life that I make decisions out of fear. Where do you long and so instinctively say, I'll go back to enslavement long before I'm asked to trust God and what he's delivering me from. The people are weak and they're fearful. But there's also a part in this passage that talks about this kind of grave robbing, this exhuming. And it says in verse 19, it says, Moses took the bones of Joseph with them. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And this is a direct quote from Genesis 50, where um, Joseph is dying in the very last uh, chapter of Genesis, the book before Exodus. And Joseph is dying and saying, take me with you. I know that God is not going to let his people be in Egypt forever. Therefore, you're going to the place God's promising you and preparing for you, so take me with you. He's in Egypt. He's a mummy, right? He's, he's perfectly uh, situated there for the long haul. And so he's saying, take me with you. Take my casket with you because I don't want to be in Egypt. I want to be in the place that God is providing for his people. And what we see here is a direct dichotomy 
the people are fe- have feeble faith and doubt. And yet, there is this faithful demand of Joseph. The people are weak, and yet we see a picture that they're given by Moses telling them, even a dead man wants to go to the promised land. It's a good thing to follow God to the promised land. So that's the people, but what's the path? If they're leaving Egypt, where are they going and how are they going? We all like the shortest route. The, the original thing was MapQuest, and now it's Google Maps and Waze and whatever it may be for you. We love the short path, but also we love the, the enjoyable, the pleasure-filled path. That's why we love the screens and cars, rightfully so, and, and that's why we love Chick-fil-A for one of the thousand reasons, and that's why Bucky's exists. If there was no interstate, there would be no Bucky's. The itinerary for us that we love is quickness, shortness, and pleasure and enjoyment. And both those two things were not the case for the Israelites. It says in verse 17, 18, and 20, it says this. It says, when Pharaoh let the people go, and they're leaving Egypt, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near, but God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle, and they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. Now, if I gave you a $100 bill, I bet you could never tell me a thing about Succoth or Etham or sure anything. Right, you're not getting a postcard from those places. And so it's, it's hard because we're in this world and we're reading about that world that's thousands of years ago. And so let's take a second and enter into it because actually the details are important. Uh, you can pop the map up, Alex. Thank you. So if you look, Egypt to the left, there's a land bridge, right? The Great Sea to the north, the Red Sea to the south. There's a land bridge, boom. And God is saying, if I took them the easiest path, we would go right from Egypt eastward on the land bridge into the land of Shur, right there where the Philistines are. But instead, he says, I'm going to take them through the land of Succoth and Etham, the land that people don't often know about. And so let's slow it down. He goes through Succoth and Etham and not Shur. So what does Succoth mean? What does Succoth mean? It means uh, to weave a protection. So God takes his people from Egypt, and instead of going eastward, he goes in the wrong direction through a place called weaving a protection. And through weaving a protection, that place called that, he goes to Etham. What does Etham mean? Eternal, long-lived, and enduring. He goes through a place of protection for his people to a place that says, long live and enduring. And that's what it means for us. But if you were an Israelite traveling away from Egypt, you would think to yourself, why are we going this way? God is taking them through Succoth and Etham, weaving a protection, going to a place of eternal, long live, enduring. That's where they're going, but where are they not going? They're not going to Shur. Again, the land bridge, due east, they're not going there. So what does sure mean? S-H-U-R. What does that wilderness mean? It means a wall. Enclosement. 
God is not taking them and running them into the wall. That's what that means. But what took place in Shur? Thanks, Alex. You can, you can nix. What took place in Shur? In Genesis 20, we hear about the land of Shur when Abraham sell, uh, tells uh, the people he's in front of that his wife, Sarah, is his sister so that he can save his own hide. Later on in Genesis 25, we see that Ishmael's descendants only they live in Shur and they live in hostility to everyone around them. In the future, in 1 Samuel 15, we see that Saul is supposed to wipe out the enemy of the Amalekites because the Amalekites are always in the story of Scripture trying to kill God's people and take them out and wipe them off the face of the earth. And God says, Saul, you, you need to take out this enemy because they want to kill you and kill my plan for my people. And Saul wins the battle, and he's supposed to kill the king and all of the people. And what he does is kill the weak people, and he kills the weak and useless livestock, and he keeps the king alive, King Agag, and he keeps all the fat livestock alive because it benefits him. All of those things happen in the land of Shur. So God is not taking them to the land of Shur, a land that says, here's a wall. He's not running his people into a wall by definition, but also the story and the history of the place. He's not taking them to the place where his people so naturally have the tendency to trust themselves. He's not taking them on the land bridge, due east, though it's the easiest, shortest, plainest path, because that's the place where his people are so easily tempted to say, I know what the good life is like, and I will attain it on my terms. And so often in our lives, just like a simplicity of geography in a land bridge of being delivered and being on a path that God is setting us on, the easiest, the plainest, the shortest paths make most sense in our heads that you're supposed to do well in school. You're supposed to get a great job. You're supposed to meet someone you fall in love with. And it's a perfect love, a textbook love. And then you go and you get married and it's a beautiful ceremony and you have a great marriage. And then you have kids and nothing goes wrong in that marriage ever. And your kids are perfect and nothing bad happens to them. And then nothing bad happens by them. And then you ride off in the sunset with the fattest 401k and that you have eternal joy and just like when you were a kid and you looked up at others and thought oh boy how great will it be when I be them in their life and stage how how wonderful it is for you the only problem with that is that it's not true and that's the short easy well-known plainest path that we know and we want and yet, that's oftentimes the story that we want in our lives, the land bridge as we're leaving, leaving Egypt. And yet God is taking us southward through Succoth and Etham so that we're in the moment of following God through Succoth and Etham that we are asking ourselves, what are you doing? What's going on? Stuff like that we're going through isn't supposed to happen to me in my story. And the truth is, he's taking them and leading them on a path that produces dependence upon them. When you look at your life story and you zoom out and you see a, 
a number of years and decades and life events and seasons of life, if you zoom out, if you were per to personify those things as an EKG, like a heartbeat, the up and down and up and down, and you were to say, you know what, kind of year by year and, and season by season, this was a great time in life, and it was great because of X, Y, or Z. And, and then at some point, it kind of got back to normal, and then actually it took a plummet because of this thing happening, and something happening to me, or happening in my life. And it was actually a, a valley of a moment. And you could EKG your whole life story. If you were to zoom out and kind of sixth sense it, that is, you look back on it and are able to have clarity and articulate your story, I bet at some point, maybe not now, and I'm not, I'm not trying to microwave meaning into your story. But at some point, I bet that you would say in the valley, uh, you learned a great deal about yourself because that was the place in which you were taught to be dependent, that you were taught to be life is not always the way I write it. And I'm so, I love control. I love the way things are supposed to happen. And, and I really was kind of a, a bare season. And yet I, I was learning dependence. The road and the path that God is taking the Israelites on is so that they can look back and say, man, remember the Red Sea, how God delivered us? Which is going to happen next week. Where were we before that? We were going through a wilderness and we were um, pushed up against the Red Sea with no way out. And we saw the Egyptians, Pharaoh had changed his mind and he is hell-bent on destroying us. And we're between this enemy nation and this wall of a Red Sea. The path that God writes for you and I, just like the Israelites, it sucketh. Where he weaves the protection of his people. And he's taking us to Etham. Where he says to us, I will take care of you and you will be dependent upon me because it's long life and it's enduring. And we know that because of Romans 8.28. Now, if you know the Bible or are familiar with the Bible, this is probably said often and you probably know it like the back of your hand. And Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Everything that happens on your path happens for your good. Now, when you're suffering, this can feel like a salt shaker that is cruel. And maybe if you have a, a streak of doubt, this feels like a hollow truth, empty. And it's not given to make you feel like God is cruel, and it's not given to make you feel like God is, has empty promises. It's made and it's said by Paul in Romans 8, to give you the reminder that God has you on a path, just like he has the Israelites, and he's taking them toward the abundant life. And because of that, all things work together for the good of those who love him. There's purpose in the journey. And he's saying you're on the journey to produce dependence. And dependence is possible because of our last thought, the pillar. The pillar. Uh, last week, at 4 a.m., my wife and I would wake up and see our two-and-a-half-year-old daughter standing right there next to our bed. And she was in this sleep regression, which is um, 
don't don't try it out. And what she had done is she had uh, climbed, kind of scaled the walls of her crib, gotten to the edge of it like a WWE person on the corner of the, the ring, kind of done a, a flip off and got down, walked over to our bed in our room and was standing there just staring at us like a real weirdo. And, and so she's going through this sleep regression. Her body's telling her, listen, you, you need to wake up. You need to go. Her body, everything in her naturally is saying, you got to get up. It's time to play. And it's not time to play. And so desperate times call for desperate measures. And we uh, went and bought uh, this clock. And the clock has this light. And uh, if you know this, uh, when it's time to go to sleep and stay in your crib, the color of the light is red. There's, there's a few people in, who know this well. And when it's, when it's daytime, when it's morning time and time to wake up, it's green. It's saying, okay, green light, you can get out. Red light, stay in your bed. From my daughter, everything in her is saying, wake up. It's time to do this. Do this, do this, do this. And what she needs is clear directives that guide her at all times. A red light at night and a green light during the day. The Israelites are just like my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Teddy. Everything in them is saying and fretting and loud and chaotic inside of them, saying, God has abandoned you. God is not with you. Yeah, he might have delivered you with the plagues, but guess what? The Egyptians are coming, and guess what? Here's the Red Sea. Okay, even if you get through the Red Sea, there's the wilderness, and it's long, and it's hard, and dry. God can't provide for you here. He's abandoned you. Everything in them is saying that, and therefore, God knows his people, and he gives them what they need, and it says to a people with fearful hearts and to a road that induces doubt, the provision of a pillars of presence is given to God's people. In verse 21, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. He gives them pillars at all times. During the day when they can see, it's cloud. During the nighttime when they can't see, it's light. And it goes before them and it says it never leaves them. Now why, why a pillar of fire and a, a pillar of a cloud? God knows his people well and it says, if you look at yourself, Israelites, look at yourself, you'll feel despair and discouragement and you'll, you'll fret and you'll run back to Egypt. If you look at what's around you, the Philistines, for example, in this one instance we see, if, if you go against the land bridge, you'll see the Philistines, you'll run back and you'll feel powerless. And if you look at the road ahead of you, you'll see all the unknowns and you'll feel anxious. God knows his people and therefore he gives them provision of saying, Here's a pillar. Look at me. During the day, look at me. During the night, look at me. I will not depart. Look at me. I'm leading you in the desert. Look at me. On the path, look at me. Where you look, 
in your Christian journey, as you follow King Jesus, as you wonder if the abundant life is actually where he's leading you, it's oh so important that you look at him. And one pastor said it this way. He said, when I base my Christian life on my Christ, uh, a Christian life on my Christian experience, I become locked in the labyrinth of my own performance. I'm only as sure of God as my current emotion and obedience allow. My eyes are fixed on myself. The gospel, the good news, is the way the Holy Spirit turns our eyes away from ourselves onto Christ. The gospel brings you into union with Christ. Christ enters your heart and gives you faith. By that faith, you receive Christ in all the fullness, his fullness. Faith fixes your eyes on Christ and rests in him. And the pillar was given to the people on the path leaving Egypt in the wilderness at all times because it's saying, look at me and rest in me. God is with his people and that's what the pillar meant. And in our point in the story of God's involvement with his people in the, the story of scripture, God is not just with us, but God is in us. That God is involving himself so much so to make his people get to the place they need. For the Israelites, they had to go to the promised land. And for you and I, he's saying, I'm involving myself so much so that I won't just be with you, but I'll be in you and I'll give you my spirit. No, I'm planted in you. And what that spirit will do is make you beautiful, that you will be just like Jesus. Romans 8, 28, where it says the potential, you know, to be cruel if it's, we're sufferers, and it's maybe uh, doubtful, and it feels hollow, where God works all good things for the people who love him. Right after that, the next verse, it says this. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God works all the things in your life for your good, because guess what? You're going somewhere. And God's spirit is in you and with you because it's saying, I'm committed to making you more and more beautiful. And it's not the way you see beauty, it's the way I see beauty. Because it's more and more like Jesus. The pillars were a reminder that God was committed. The pillars never left. God was committed to getting his people home. And the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity that resides in the life of someone who says, I'm following you, King Jesus, says, I'm here and I'm never going to leave you to make you beautiful and redeemed and transformed just like Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, would you, just as you gave the Israelites the pillars, would you remind us of the pillar that we have? And I do wish it was something that we could see right in front of us because I feel so foggy and blinded at times and I'm not alone there. But Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit and that we don't lack anything with it. And so, 
this day, would you remind us that the Holy Spirit is the one that brings transformation and change and beauty. And the Holy Spirit's the one that leads us through a path that we so often and easily question when you're up to something, if you're up to something. Jesus, the feeble faith that the Israelites had is one that I myself have. So help someone like me and these, my friends, follow you in a way that we trust the path you're taking us on. And it may not be the shortest, simplest, through sure, but it certainly is good. Where you weave a protection for us and you take us to the place where we find enduring life. We pray this in your name. Amen. But it certainly is good. Where you weave a protection for us and you take us to the place where we find enduring life. We pray this in your name. Amen.